Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. Um, you know, I've mentioned this be- before several times, but I almost called this podcast and community uh, Sex, Politics, and Religion because we they say we're not supposed to talk about those things, but damn, I love to talk about those things. And I'm joined today by someone that I connected with on Instagram um, who is goes by and I'll, I'll put a link to her her Instagram which is she's brilliant funny um, insightful uh, uh, person uh, attachment nerd and it's around attachment theory and I've had psychotherapists on this this show several times but I've never touched on the topic of attachment theory but today we're going to talk about attachment theory as it relates to sex as it relates to intimacy um, whether that's you know if you're uh, however you identify. Um, so I'm really excited to introduce you to Eli Harwood. Eli Harwood is a, a, a licensed, I kind of messed this up, Eli. It doesn't Say matter. It. I'm a licensed professional counselor and LPC. A licensed professional counselor has been doing psychotherapy work for about 16 years based in Colorado and is an uh, attachment theory expert who applies it to relationships um, where, you know, it's obviously attachment theory uh, your attachment style is most affected. Um, so welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So you you touched on a little bit of your mission before we hit record. And I think it would be great to hear that because a lot of your content is around parenting. But as we said, you know, parenting and 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 in maintaining good, healthy intimacy in that parenting relationship, if you're in a you know mm-hmm. traditional monogamous relationship with someone is important. So talk about your mission about why and why that, why you care about this so much. Yeah. Well, so let me tell you a tiny bit of my story. Please. Do. I, I was um, born into a family. My mom and my dad were married and they were messes and they were messes for different reasons and in different ways. But um, my father was a uh, struggling with addiction and my mother was struggling with some serious CPTSD mm-hmm. and mental illness. Mm-hmm. So I arrived into the world in a space where there were no safe containers for me. And I probably as a genetic adaptation, something that's in my natural system in some way, shape or form already adapted to take care of my caregivers in order to feel taken care of. Right? We call that parentification, right? So There was a lot of anxiety in my home and instability in my home and conflict in my home. Um, And I have a brother, so he joined that. And we we played that in different ways. But so I grew up with a lot of stuff. And Mm -hmm. all of that stuff created an anxiety in me around my sense of worthiness for connection. And Mm -hmm. it created a, a little habit in my brain of trying to be what other people wanted me to be in order to get them to love me. Mm -hmm. Right. And that never works out that well. (laughs) and so when I was in my 20s um you know I was hopping from relationship to relationship going choose me choose me and it wasn't working and I wasn't feeling chosen in the way I want to feel chosen and I was like this is not working so I hired myself what my mother kindly refers to as a -a rent-a-friend I got a shrink I got a therapist Mm -hmm. and in that process the therapist I was working with started to help me make connections to my early beginnings And the ways I was relating to my romantic partners and how Mm -hmm. some of that energy was really about this unresolved trauma from growing up. Mm -hmm. And as I started working on that, there was this massive shift in my body, in the way I was relating and also in who I was choosing, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, I, I started to say no to people who in the past I would have said yes to. And there was this movement that I would describe from an insecure pattern mm-hmm. to a secure pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, it was so profound that I went and got my master's degree. I was like, mm. this shit is <laughs> like, yeah. I am a different person. I feel different. I'm loving different. I'm receiving love differently. And it was all about being able to make the connections to the ways that my parents related to me. And right. I don't blame my parents. My parents both love me very much, loved me very much. They just had stuff. Yeah. And they they, didn't, yeah. I said that about my parents. They didn't have the skills. Yep. Exactly. I mean, they fucked up a lot. And, yes. you know, and, and there was abuse. There was abuse. And I, I don't I ever, I don't ever condone that. Um, but I have no. also forgiven them because they didn't have the tools. They didn't have the skills. That's so, right. And, yeah. and I do, and I, not everyone believe, has the same belief, but I do hold a belief that, that 99.9% of people do the very best they can. And that includes parents yeah. with yeah. what they have and what they know and what their neurological system is capable of and all of those things. So anyway, yeah. so my story is really, I had attachment trauma. I had a healer in my life that helped me figure that out. And then I was like, I want to tell everybody about this. Mm-hmm. And for 16 years, I've been doing that in my practice and I've been studying it and watching it. And it's become so important to me that I decided to run my mouth on the internet about it. (laughs) And it turns out that it's really resonating with a lot of people because it's science. Yeah. (laughs) We have data on this. It's not just my opinion. There is solid longitudinal data that what happens when we are young affects what happens when we are creating romantic bonds? Right. Beautiful. So that goes right into the first question that, um, and this is one of those things where, you know, I still have my thoughts on this because I've done my own self-study of attachment theory and read all the books and Love it. and and uh, all that, but I'm not an expert like you, um, but I have opinions. Uh, so but you could I, be an attachment nerd too. We can be two oh, attachment, attachment You know, nerd. like we're just trying to figure all this out. You got anyway, the creds. So I, don't know, um, I have, I have this response to being in the expert position of, of like, yeah. you know, I think that's why I call myself the attachment nerd is I want, I don't want to be put on a pedestal as the only person who knows all the things. I don't yeah. want to be the attachment expert. I want to be someone who has spent an embarrassingly <laughs> large amount of time digging into, you know, theory of mind and yeah co-regulation and yes. all of these things. But anyway, I'm just, I, let's both yeah. be experts because we've both, right. we'll both be experts today. Awesome. Okay. I like your so what, what would you like to share? So <laughs> what is attachment theory to you? Like what, when you, when, when, because you know, it's yeah, people can Google it, but you have such a fresh take on it. I would love to hear what your definition of attachment theory is or attachment style. Well, here's what's interesting. Those are two different things. Right. And a lot of people don't know that they're actually two different sets of data also. Oh, so um, attachment theory uh, was coined in the 1950s, predominantly by two different people, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. Um, and Harry Harlow was a part of it, too. So they're kind of the three three people. And I'm sure there are people of color that got no credit for it that are also a part of this that we don't know who they are. But everything. Yes. Yes. Um, but those are the three that, you know, we're, we're really in the public sphere talking about it and had platforms to talk about it. Um But the theory they were positing is that the human brain and the human nervous system 
evolves in a relationship. So human babies are born unbelievably helpless compared to other mammals. It's actually kind of embarrassing, right? Right. Like the mama elephant gives birth and that baby's like, cool, let's go on a walk. Exactly. (laughs) Yep. And the human baby is like, I literally cannot see two inches in front of my face. Like I am completely dependent in, and in the attachment world, we talk about the fourth trimester being those three months after a baby is born is that, yeah, they're out of the womb, but basically they are still surviving entirely on that parent's body. Mm -hmm. So What we guess and have been guessing in terms of why this is, is that it allows our brains to develop in more complex ways. So it's almost like we have a longer gestation period. And that gestation period is not just while we're in the womb, it's while we are infants, right? And before, and that whole process before we are mobile is an extra amount of time that we can develop these more complex brain systems. Mm -hmm. That we can't really prove or not prove that's that, that we have that as an idea, but What we have found in the research that is very interesting is that there is a direct correlation to how emotionally available and comforting that a caregiver is to their infant and what that infant develops as a response pattern to that parent's interactions. Mm. Then, so that's one set of data. And the the best research tool, if you really want to nerd out about it, is to look up the strange situation. That's okay. the one with the most data on, the most culturally diverse data, the most replication. It's one of the most well-replicated studies in science. Okay. So the strange situation is, is that tool that's kind of gotten us to really recognize, okay, infants play out these generally three patterns. Mm-hmm. And there's a fourth category that is not a pattern, which is a little confusing, but I'll explain that later. So they play out these three patterns and... And we can really say this is happening across cultures, like, and we're learning about this infant parent caregiver dyad and what, how that's affecting the infant. And it's not genetic. Mm-hmm. It is not about genes. It's about the relationship. Okay. Right. Then we have this data that was from Mary Main University of California, Berkeley, and her husband, partner, Eric Hesse, um, where they took some of that original data and started to wonder about how it affects people in adulthood. So they created a tool called the adult attachment interview. And the adult attachment interview really looks at how does the way you were raised affect the way that you think about relationships in the present. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's this other piece of data that has spanned all of it together, but specifically on the AAI is that we've started to recognize is there are ways for people to shift their pattern. So it's not like you develop this pattern and that's it. It's sealed in. You're that for the rest of your life. You can do work and get care from other people and redo your way of being in relationships into a secure pattern from an insecure pattern. Yeah. So that is all from the developmental psychological research. Uh Social psychology has done its own set of research. And actually it's kind of funny because there's like some competition and contention between the two pieces of research, but they use similar language. Mm -hmm. So whenever someone's saying that someone has an attachment style, that's Mm -hmm. the social psychology research. The Ainsworth, the attachment theory, the Bowlby, the Mary Main, we wouldn't say you have a style. We would say you have a pattern. Mm -hmm. The reason we would say that is all of that research is studying the relationship, not the individual. So it's looking at the quality of the relationship. And this is why, and I think this has been really confusing for a lot of people is they'll be like, I think I'm 
two of these styles? Well, you might actually have developed two of these patterns because you had different caregivers who related to you differently. Yes, exactly. And you may have one that's more primary than the other. And that's likely because one of your caregivers probably played more of a primary role with you than the other caregiver. Yes. So, so I have gotten to the point now where I don't really use the language of style because I tend to resonate more with the developmental psychology. So I just use the word pattern, but it doesn't matter. And even though the, the research between those two things is different and doesn't actually directly correlate from a clinical perspective, it correlates. Okay. Yeah. And I think, you know, I don't know who said it originally, but all, all systems are flawed. Some are useful. I would say that these are <laughs> yeah. frameworks to understand things uh, and yes, yes, yes. that they're not, they're not in set in stone. I mean, they're science-based, but there's always new data. I mean, look at, look at brain research in the last 10 years mm-hmm. is, has been like a, it's like a 50,000 year leap in 10 years around how the brain works. We know a pinky finger of right. the brain. Still. We we're, we're, do not whole, understand it. Yes. Right. The whole science of consciousness unto itself mm-hmm. is fascinating too. Mm-hmm. So my thing with attachment theory and having been uh, attachment and attachment style um, is I was, I first heard about it from my therapist who specializes in like trauma informed therapy, internal family systems, nice. really working on integrating it, her term integrating trauma instead of trying to yes. heal from it because yes. we're evolutionary creatures. And so it's yeah. about integrating. And I got this crazy idea that overlapping basically higher self and lower self, mm-hmm. um, which is more of a spiritual spectrum sure, um, with the masculine and the feminine and the attachment style. Mm. And that what I have seen in myself and others is that if you're in your lower self and, and you are more masculine oriented, you tend to be a people controller mm. and your attachment style still could be either avoidant or anxious or one of the other quadrants, uh-huh. but you can bounce around and you can really start to map out how the either trauma or the, or the absence of trauma, which is its own sort of wound mm-hmm. where, where people come from very secure families. And then they, then the shit hits the fan when they get out into the real world and, mm-hmm. and they have their heart broken and it shatters their, their ideal idyllic life. But, <laughs> It can affect their attachment pattern. So our exactly. attachment patterns can be healed. Yes. They can be healed, but they can also be wounded, right? Yes. Like you can grow up in a secure family and end up with an extremely sociopathic, abusive person right. because you, you didn't see it coming because most people never do. And right. then now you're five years into having someone scramble your attachment system and you have to heal it. Right. And then I also, then you get into this like level <laughs> of consciousness. So you, like, you go up like, like David Hawkins's map of consciousness and you kind of go up, up it above the courage line. And then, you, but yet you still have this mind that needs a framework to how to relate. And that's how I describe attachment style. It's, mm-hmm. it is a, it is a framework for how you relate and it could be well, with your, your partner. Me, yeah. mm-hmm. Yes. I love that. And let me add to it, which is it's a framework for how you relate in your close intimate relationships and exactly. how you maintain proximity and closeness. Right. And that, and I want to talk about avoidant attachment at some point in this, because it gets a really bad stereotype. That's not correct. Um, people aren't avoidant because they don't want relationship. They're avoidant because in their family of origin, being avoidant allowed them to stay closer, longer 
to their caregivers. So it's an attempt at closeness, not at disconnection. And it's, I love that, you know, again, we've, we've never spoke and we're already speaking the same language, which is cool because if I play that definition of attachment style to me is it's how you relate in relationships that require safety. Mm, And and then your X factor is, did you have an unsafe childhood? Like, I don't recall ever feeling safe at home for all my life. I felt safe at my grandmother's and out and out on the ranch you know, a nature. I did not feel ever, ever feel safe at home. Even when I was by myself, really, I didn't feel safe. So that well, because affects- safety is a relational construct. That's right. right. Like yeah. no child is born and all, you know, lays out in the leaves for a while and figures it out. And right. you no, know, that's not how it is. We are relationally constructed. Right. Yes. Right. So now when you think about this kind of goes into this, the second question that I sent you about your attachment patterns or your attachment style um, affecting intimacy, how you relate to someone sexually. Mm-hmm. Um, and mm-hmm. so I'd love to hear your take on that. Like the, this correlation between your sexual identity and proclivities and whatever's and your attachment st- style or patterns. Well, so you're the king of the mishmash clearly, which I love. <laughs> and so, I mean, this is a mishmash conversation, right? Yes. So the, you know, way we develop sexually, like, how do we develop in, in relationship to our body, our sexual desire? What's the story there? And then what's the story with our, with our attachment experience? So let me, let me break down kind of in really basic terms. Someone who is secure in their early attachment experiences, they internalize a sense of worthiness, which then helps them to feel that their needs are worthy which leads them to directly communicate their needs without waiting for someone else to notice them. Mm -hmm. That, that process can get fudged up Mm -hmm. if there's any kind of sexual abuse their caregivers don't know about. Mm -hmm. And I'm bringing that up because one in three girls, one in six boys. Yes, exactly. It needs to be so mad. And I think that's too safe of a statistic, honestly. I think that's really defining it in its most um, obvious terms in molestation and rape. It's like, right. And it doesn't include, it doesn't include the, the uh, religious stigmatization of sex, which is its own kind of abuse. So that's not, tell me you read Joshua Harris when you were in high school. I don't think so. Oh, I kissed dating goodbye. Hmm. Okay. Well, I kissed dating goodbye in high school. So, um, but you know, it was a book that was basically like any, any person that you kiss or interact with before your partner is like a shame file that now your partner. Oh, it's like the purity culture bullshit. Yes. It's very much, very much influenced by like Elizabeth Elliot and all that stuff. Um, but you're right. It doesn't play. So, so when we talk about attachment, we talk about a caregiver responding tenderly to a child's distress and emotional needs, co-regulating that child right? And also connecting with them in play and fun and creating that sense of belonging, okay? Mm -hmm. But as a child develops sexually, there are a lot of opportunities for that relationship to cease being secure because so many people are so uncomfortable around sex. Mm -hmm. So things I think of are like, you know, a a 12-year-old girl starts getting little breast buds and her dad is like, not going to hug her anymore because he's like weirded out that she's got boobs, right? So all of a sudden, this person I used to be able to rely on and trust is like disgusted with my body and I can feel that, 
right? Or avoidant of my body. So what's that going to do to your sexuality? So the mishmash, I'm going to give you some, like, this is, this is, these are some categories to think about with this, but I'm, I brought up all those situations because I want people to hear there is so much complexity in our attachment development and in our sexual development and in the way those two interplay. Yes. Homophobia coming into the scene, right? Yes. In general, in general, when it comes to sex, sex is sex can have different meanings for different people. So if you, if you grew up in a home where your caregivers were intermittently available for you, so maybe there you had a drinking problem and sometimes they were there and sometimes they weren't, or maybe they had a mental illness that went on and off, or they were really busy, not very available to you, but sometimes, sometimes they cared for you and you felt connected you develop what's called an anxious, ambivalent style in childhood. In adulthood, we call it a preoccupied style, okay? And here's what that basically means. You were intermittently given what you needed, so you became hypervigilant as fuck, uh-huh. okay? You looked and looked and looked and looked and looked. Am I gonna, are you gonna be here now? Are you gonna be yep. here now? Are you gonna leave me now? Who are you going? Where are you going? How are we gonna be? Yep. <laughs> so sex in that context often becomes a form of dopamine. Yes. If you want me sexually, that means I'm wanted. It means we're okay. It means you like me. It means I'm good for you. Right. And, and it, and it's less about really truly connecting with your partner and it's more about feeling safe and secure and wanted. Yeah. Which I would argue isn't actually intimate. No. Right. It's, it's a coping skill and there's a bit of usury in it. And this is a style that I grew up with. So just know I'm talking about myself. It it resonates with me very much. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, someone who grew up in an avoidant home. So it's a home where the caregivers were primarily unable to respond with any form of emotional attunement, empathy, or comfort. So everything was distraction. And it doesn't mean these caregivers were neglectful in terms of our traditional idea of neglect. They often packed the best lunches. You know, they've got exactly the right carrots that you want and they've made sure that your bed is perfectly made. They're instrumentally attentive. They are not emotionally attentive. Okay. And so they dismissed emotions and and you learn to shut down. So, so there's a shutting down of desire for connection because it hurts too much to continue to want a caregiver to connect with you who is not going to. Okay. Mm -hmm. So now you come into adulthood and your style is now considered dismissive. Generally, two things are going to happen with sex. One, you're going to have like a, an, a, a discomfort with intimacy within sex. So you're going to find ways to have sex without being connected because mm-hmm. connection feels like a, a burden to the other person. It feels overwhelming. So, and that, and that disconnection might be that like, you look at a lot of porn, you know, and, and you do that because you don't have to fear to rejection and you don't have to fear someone else not liking what you're doing. And it just feels more simple, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then with your partner, you know, they're like, don't you want me? And they're like, well, no, I don't want it that much, you know, or, or not wanting to look at your partner when you're having yeah. sex or definitely not wanting to talk about sex or the emotions around sex. Yes. yes. You know, cause that is some messy territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then someone who's secure is going to come into sexuality with, with a far greater desire. It's the desire for sex is going to be like, I want to have some sex in order to connect with you and to enjoy this pleasure, but, but less like in order to feel worthy or 
in order to hide or in order to ignore like it's it's more like hey i want you yeah. and i want an usness experience and so if you don't want it right now i'm not threatened by that right. and if you do want it right now i'm not threatened by that I I recognize we're two separate people and there's a dance here and we're going to go in and out of it and it's okay. Yeah. Fascinating, man. That's the best breakdown. I mean, I talk, I nerd out about this with a lot of people. That's a brilliantly the way you broke it down. It was, it was like, uh, it reminded me of like Tony Romo breaking down a football play. Like, you know, I take naps during football. So I don't know who that is. No, that's okay. Well, (laughs) I have range. I can talk about this stuff and football. I love Um, it. (laughs) anyway um so here's what i've noticed and is that um anxious attachment style um, we're going to call it anxious ambivalent and the reason we're going to do that is because the avoidance style is actually technically anxious avoidant okay and we have data that shows that especially in the infants the babies who don't reach for their caregivers when they're separated, who look calm, Uh the same amount of stress hormones as the babies who are dysregulated and crying. So so to get the terminology right, the the anxious, say the first one. This is anxious ambivalent. Anxious ambivalent. Or anxious avoidant. Anxious avoidant. Okay. So with anxious ambivalent, I've just, what you said about it, that, that sex is a form of affirmation. Um, and I also, it seems like it's a very correlative and um, it's, co- it's correlative, but it's observationally correlative is that people that are anxious, have anxious ambivalence attachment style tend to seem like they have more body dysmorphia. Oh, um, yes. From their bodies. Yeah. And you know, one knows this is, this is completely not well-researched. It is only my clinical observation, but I've dabbled in working with eating disorders over the years. And I would say that bulimia is the eating disorder of the anxiously ambivalent, whereas anorexia or binge eating are the eating disorders of the avoidant person. Yes. And I would go with the, with the uh, anxious avoidant tends to be more promiscuous and because it's a way of control. And so it goes back to my thing about pleasing versus controlling. Mm -hmm. Now it's not that you know, again. let me add the anxious avoidant. It, I, no, it's, it's, that's not totally true. The okay. anxious avoidant can be an extreme on other either side, because it's because their locus of control is in limiting intimacy. Right. But that's what I'm saying. If they are active, if, yeah. if they do have, if they are having sex, it's mm-hmm. a different, it's almost transactional or they don't have it at all. It, yes, it's, yes. It, yeah, I it, see what you're saying. It's sort of the incel, you know, uh, culture a little bit too. So uh, yeah, yeah a whole other topic, which we can get into because that hits all the things, the political no, another episode. <laughs> um yeah, I but, but because a lot of I, a lot of a lot of ambivalent folks are looking to find themselves. Yes, through sex. sex. Yes. And a lot of avoidant folks are looking to avoid themselves That's in exactly. sex. Exactly. And it, so it's this series of short-term monogamous relationships often mm-hmm. with the, with the uh, ambivalent and even, you know, and again, I'm taking almost asexual out of the equation. It yeah. seems like the uh, uh, anxious, avo- anxious avoidant tend have also a pattern more towards asexual 
uh, mm-hmm. tendencies. And I don't mean that as an identity. I just mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't have sex. So, um, but I, I, you know, in this topic with men in particular mm-hmm. is if when someone says to me, like they don't get enough sex and they're not happy with their sex life in their marriage or their, their relationship or whatnot, as I always point to look at your, find out what your attachment style is mm. because this is again, a, another kind of math, would you call me the king of mishmash is that mm-hmm. is polarity mm-hmm. and, and you need masculine feminine polarity. And that's not a gender thing. It's really borrowing it from David Dida's way of the superior man. Mm. You need creative polarity in order to feel sexually can truly sexually attracted and connected to someone, mm-hmm. but anxious, uh, uh, ambivalent and avoidant feels like a polarity, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's almost like a negation. It negates it out. And what I've seen over and over again, especially with men, mm-hmm. if they have more ambivalent attachment style, they are with avoidant women or partners. I'm using heteronormative terms here. Yep. And, and the ver- right, vice versa. And they end up being sort of buddies in the relationship. And there is no, because, because here's the thing, unless you're secure in this, you talked about the dance, unless you're secure, mm-hmm. the dance feels like tension. And I don't like tension, regardless if I'm ambivalent or I'm, or I'm avoidant. Mm-hmm. I don't like tension, but tension is, t- sex is tension. It's good mm-hmm. tension. Mm-hmm. So right, it's the in-between and and the in and the out. And you know, I think of Khalil Gibran's <laughs> poem where we talk about the, you know, the, the space between the cypress trees and yes. The um the other factor here, so you're right. Uh I I jokingly call the anxious, ambivalent, preoccupied folks, I call them the honey badger because no matter how much honey they'll get, they want more. Yes, right. right? And we we know there's actually a a they produce more dopamine than people who are avoidant. Yes. So, and then the avoidant person I call the turtle. Okay. And that, that turtle wants to go into their shell. They feel safest internal, not external, not interacting. Honey badgers and turtles are drawn to each other. And I think this is evolutionary because you have a skill I don't have. The honey badger knows how to keep going for the thing. Right. And the turtle needs that, right? And the turtle knows how to take a nap. Yes. And the honey badger needs that. And so there's this drawing into each other yeah. and, and a real potential for healing. If there, if you have the same level of disorganization. So this is a, a the next factor in attachment is how disorganized we was in your experience, right? So fundamentalist religion, that's going to increase your disorganization in your attachment, yes. right? Alcoholism, that's going to increase your, your disorganization. I mean, look at the ACE questionnaire, essentially. Although, does the ACE questionnaire say fundamentalist religion? It should. I don't think it, it does. Should. It should. It should. Yeah, I wrote an essay about this a couple of weeks ago called The Piece of Shit Doctrine, and that there's three things that have affected our sense of self, one of them being fundamentalism. Even if we didn't grow up in fundamentalism, we still deal with purity culture in this country, especially if you're a woman and you and you are mm-hmm. sexually expressive. You you yeah. you're, You know, it's... It's anyway, that's again, another, well, and patriarchy and the role that's played in white supremacy and the role that's played in religion and all of that. So yes, but so your disorganization is going to affect how insecure you feel in your insecurity, right? And, and the intensity of how disconnection feels for you also. So you get a turtle and a honey badger together and, you know, you have various levels of turtles. You have turtles who never come out of their shell. You have turtles that come out every day. You have honey badgers that will beat you over the head with a two by four. And you have honey badgers that are going to just sit and go, right? 
hey, 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 hey. So there's a wide range of what's going to actually play out in that dynamic between those two. But well, well, it's interesting, and I, I, I got permission from my partner to use my us as a case study here a little bit without yeah. oversharing. Is yeah. I, I tend towards anxious, ambivalent, mm-hmm. um, and she tends towards avoidant, um, uh, anxious, avoidant. And the, you use a honey badger and a turtle. turtle. I use uh, a golden retriever and a cat. Interesting. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh-huh. What we've agreed, though, in our relationship is that we are not going to approach intimacy if we're not, both of us are not in a secure state. Yeah, I love. If either of us are off center, we will we will we will still be compassionate and we'll hold space for the other person to return to center. Mm-hmm. But out of respect for the intimacy part of our relationship, we don't we don't engage in intimacy unless we're both in a place of secure. Now, we both have done a shit ton of work, inner work, shadow work, spiritual mm-hmm. work, and and. We are we operate, I think, most days at most times, unless our window of tolerance has been shrunk by, you know, something life from by life in a place of secure, you know, secure attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that has done is it's actually in this this sort of agreement is enhanced sort of almost like perpetual foreplay. Everything is flirtatious. If you know that you've committed that we're only going to do this from a secure space. Mm. mutuality right like the the i mean you're such a spiritual guy have you read boober yes yes definitely that that i thou that sense of like yes we are both subjects in this endeavor and endeavor as opposed to one of us being an object right and there's object there's lots of objectification that can happen in sex it could be gender objectification it could be racial you know all that but it can also be attachment right so i'm i'm making you this parental object to make me feel safe or I'm making you a dismissive parental object who I'm never going to feel safe with. And so I don't want to connect with you. And so you two have, have gotten to a place where you've resolved some of that childhood stuff. And now you're interacting as adults and you're preventing sexual trauma, which I cannot tell you how many people come into my office with sexual trauma from their marriages. Marriages. Yeah. And my partner, she's, she's a feminist activist. And she talks about that a lot, that, and she actually, she, her primary language is Spanish. And so she had a therapist on it and her podcast is in Spanish, but they talked just about that, about cool. sexual trauma within marriages, especially within the, the Latino community, mm. um, which is her frame of reference. Yeah. I, I, it is in any community. And I think in any, the more patriarchal the community, the more, the more sexual right. yeah. trauma there is because the more patriarchal community, the more that split, right. Where yeah. I am, uh, the, I am is you know, set to these binaries. Yes. And it's about power. Yes. um, At that point. So the last question um, is kind of, these are sort of natural segues is two people have, you know, they, they, they're, they're working towards secure, but you know, we kind of have our, our lower self shrunken wonder of tolerance, you know, anxious avoidant Mm -hmm. um, or anxious ambivalent um, styles. How can a couple create, help create safety and trust with each other, especially around intimacy? Because, mm-hmm. you know, that intimacy doesn't even need to be sex. It could just be closeness. Um, mm-hmm. well, yeah, we have different domains of intimacy. We have emotional yeah, right. intimacy. You've exactly. got right. physical affection that is intimate, that is not sexual. Yep. 
Right. Because what intellectual I, I where this question comes from, and I don't, we don't do this, but I've witnessed it where people in a relationship will say, well, you're doing that because you're avoidant or you're, you're, that's your anxious attachment style. They're like playing psychotherapists with each other. <laughs> that's not promoting safety and trust. No. And, and safety and trust is sexy as hell. <laughs> that's yeah. when you, and so how can two people that are maybe on the, on the spectrum, opposite on the spectrum, working towards the center of, of a secure attachment, how can they support each other? Right. Well, a couple of things. One, I would say releasing the pressure valve, right? So there is no right amount of sex that you're supposed to have. And if you're, if you've got some wounds in your relationship and you're trying to repair those, there's no right amount of time that you should abstain or not abstain or like, so take off the pressure valve and listen really closely to your body and yourself and your partner's body and your partner's self. So the questions I would be asking myself would be what sex functioned for me as Mm -hmm. what, what do I look for in sex and what are the things I look for in sex that are not honoring to my partner or myself? Yes. Um, what's my long-term goal for sex? Like, what do I want? What do I want it to be? Right. Mm -hmm. What, what do I hope for establishing with my partner? And then you take, whatever it is that comes up with that. And you hold it as equally as whatever your partner answers to those questions. And you sit, you sit in some of that tension around, okay, so you are really looking for sex to be a place where you feel you can be your most vulnerable self. And I'm realizing that like, I want sex to be really playful because that sounds so freeing to me. Right. So how can we begin to honor both of those needs, right? Yeah. Like, how can I come and enter in the space and the sexual domain with you in such a sacred, tender way that you feel like you can be vulnerable and seen and I can care for you? And then how can you shore up your internal resources and enter into a playful way that honors the desires that I'm having? Like we, it's, it's a, you know, taking turns honoring each other and honoring yourselves. Yeah. And, and speaking from a male perspective too, on this is you, this, this making someone feel safe in the bedroom or wherever (laughs) you're doing it, but it, it doesn't start there. It's, this isn't about like making sure the door's locked and the kids are asleep or, I mean, yeah, yeah, those are good logistics. It is every fucking day is that you are working to make your partner feel seen, mm-hmm. um, autonomous, mm-hmm. and expressive. Mm-hmm. Because at least my understanding of, of female sexuality is it's, you know, that it's, 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 it's about expression mm-hmm. um, and it, being able to express their, their true selves in, through intimacy. If you don't do that, if you don't create that space, and again, using heteronormative terms here, but if you don't create that space outside of, you know, you know, the bedroom, you, first of all, it's just, you're, you're not, I'll be very blunt. You're, that's weak ass as a man. Your job is to make your partner feel like a queen, that her space, her space is protected. Her ability to express her, her freedom to express herself is protected and her, and that you respect and honor her as a being, as an individual. 
So yeah. this is so interesting because what the what you're the way you're describing this and how you're talking about it, so much of it is context specific, right? So why is that? Why would that be true? Well, because we live in a patriarchal culture that doesn't permit women to be seen in their fullness, right? right? right. Let's say we eradicate that and we start to live in really an equanimous, is that a word? I don't know. Whatever, we'll go with it. Equanimous. <laughs> I don't think it is. Anyway, society. Uh-huh. Now it's less about what's the male role, what's the female role, because because we're not playing all that stuff out. And then it's like, how can you be fully seen? How can I be fully seen? Right. How can your desires be met? How can my desires be met? Right. And and there's more playfulness, I think. In that's that. right. And I think that's the other thing, too, is that if like to me, eroticism is safety, trust and laughter. Hmm. And that is true. And no matter what you're doing, mm-hmm. it doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be when you're naked. It could be at any time that if, if you make your person laugh and they yeah. feel safe to express and you both feel that way, then you get back into what I said around polarity, which now it's not about male, female power dynamic anymore. It's just about masculine, feminine energy interplaying with each other yep. and heart and mind and, and all of that. And, and it's, and it's the play, the play. play. So, which, so what I think me, you're though, describing, go ahead. Yeah. No, 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 go ahead. No, you go. You're going to make me go. Okay, bye. Um, What you're describing is um, attunement. So in the original attachment research, I can hear my children speaking of attunement. So I probably have like five more minutes left. But um, in the original attachment research, attunement was described as synrhythmia. So you can hear that there is musicality to it, right? It's we're in sync and there's a rhythm. And so what you're discussing is that pattern of connection. Yes. I had a graduate professor who would say four plays started yesterday. Yes. Right? So what, what is happening in our dynamic? Are you seeing me? Those little nuances yes. of connection that then translate into that power and that rhythm that becomes more exaggerated and more intense and physical in physical intimacy. Yes. But that dance. And I, a lot of couples fall out of a pattern of eroticism because they fall out of a pattern of attuning to each other. They right. attune at the beginning, they pay a lot of attention, they're studying, they're reading, and then they feel like they know each other and they stop doing it. And nobody knows each other. I don't even know myself, right? And and we change every day because we're, we're nature. We're and we're and that attunement yeah. then is a fresh start. And and here's the thing: it all runs on novelty. Mm. If we're changing every day eroticism runs on novelty. If we're changing every day and we're paying attention to how we're changing and how our partner is changing, we're reigniting the brain chemistry of attraction. Yes. The the brain's not that sophisticated. You can fall in love four or five times a day with a person you've been with for 40 years. Yeah. Your brain still thinks it happened yet happened in the moment, but that takes attunement and paying attention. And here's my final thought on that. It's impossible to pay attention to someone else in a healthy way if you do not do self-care first. Agreed. If you're not doing your own work and where you can you can be you can go from from me to we in spiral dynamics. If you mm-hmm. go from me to we, if you can't do that, then how you are seeing your partner, especially related to sex, is through a distorted lens mm-hmm. of either control or pleasing. Back to that yeah. idea. Yep. My view. I love it. I mean, a lot of what I talk about in my parenting work is that I'm helping parents move from a control model of relating to a connection model of relating. And that is absolute, that absolutely plays out in our adult relationships as well. Am I relating to you in order to feel 
the illusion of control because none yes. of us have control yes. or am I relating to you in order to enter that sacred, vulnerable, mysterious space of what will happen when I release control and we are together and, and when you release control and we are together and that's intimacy. That's it. And, and, and that is like, yeah, that is intimacy. That's a good place to put a pin in it. Uh, awesome. So this was so invigorating so, so enlightening, so fun. Thank you so much. You're so uh, welcome. I love the way your brain works and listening to all the mishmash and all of the pieces of information that you're pulling together and all the ways you're trying to grow and help the world grow. Well, so back at you. Thank you so much. Wonderful to meet you. You too.